Hey everyone, it's your favorite meth man here, and I want to welcome you to the prologue, episode zero as it were, of the unending catastrophe, a history of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict up to 1984. If you know who I am, you know I've been on a couple podcasts. But I've never really done anything like this before. So this is a very, very new endeavor for me. It's a very, very scary thing. Uh, but very interesting. And it's something that I think that needs to happen. But before we start, and I want it to be known and understood that the first episode of this podcast is going to take some time for me to make. Like anywhere between three to six months because there's a lot of research I have to do. Still, there's a lot of writing and a lot of reading I have to do, a lot of notes. I'm probably going to make a sub-stack, which a lot of these people do, and I think it'd be easy for everyone to sort of um, look at everything through the sub-stack, and hopefully through that, you'll be able to subscribe to the podcast on Spotify or iTunes. But before we start talking about this, I think it's of great importance that we talk about what I think is one of the diciest subjects anyone can talk about, especially in relation to this podcast, this kind of uh, subject, especially in relation to the subject of Palestine and Israel. That is the subject of anti-Semitism. Now, what is that and how does that, well, I mean, obviously we can see how it relates to a conflict that pertains with Jews and uh, other Semitic peoples, such as the Arabs, specifically in this case the Palestinian Arabs. But what is anti-Semitism? And I think, it, I think it's important that we think about it outside of the modern context, and we think about the, relationship, the relationships that Jews have had with their neighbors for centuries. And if you're left-wing, no, I'm not going to go in about... Um, white supremacy and the evils of Christianity. And if you're right wing, I'm not I'm not really gonna talk about, you know, the protocols of the Elder of Zion or anything like that. Rather I wanna get to the fundamental core as to why I think Jews have never gotten along specifically with Christians. And I think if we talk about this, it'll sort of bring a little bit of context to how we're going to start this podcast and I think it'll allow us to really just think about the subject of this podcast in in a fresh and frankly honest manner without feeling as if we have to tread on eggshells or we have to be afraid of what we can or can't speak about so when it comes to anti-semitism specifically in the modern context what we're talking about specifically is not just simply hatred of Jews for the fact they're Jewish, but we're talking about a whole level of accusations against the Jews, that they betrayed Jesus Christ, that they killed Jesus Christ, that they persecuted Christians, and they engaged in a whole set of behaviors. Uh, and These accusations are considered part of anti-Semitism. And the modern narrative about the, Jew- about the Jews, about the Jewish people, is that they have been persecuted for 2,000 years by Romans and then later on Christians. And now they're persecuted. And the one country that they claim to be there is, you know, the one Jewish state uh, surrounded by 22 other Arab states. 
And I think this narrative is very false because I don't think it really understands. I don't think it really properly explains both the historical context upon which Christians and Jews came to conflict. And I don't think it really understands the heart of the matter between the conflict of Christians and Jews. And we'll get into the Muslims in a little bit. But I want to start with this. So, it's generally accepted by historians that Jews were never really, prior to Christianity, Jews were never really persecuted for the sake of being Jews. Jews were simply one minority group amongst many within the Roman Empire. And prior to that, um, the Babylonians had eyed uh, the, the Levant for, for, for reasons of conquest, as to what, for the same reasons that they'd eyed other parts of the, of the Mediterranean and of the Middle East. Very little to do with the people there. They simply wished to conquer. And, and of course, Cyrus the Great liberates the Jews, but most Jews did not want to leave Babylon. Only a small, dedicated group of religious Jews decided to do this. And by the time of the Roman Empire, specifically by the time of Christ, most Jews did not live in what we would call historic Palestine. They lived outside of it. Many lived in Babylon. Many lived in what we call modern-day Babylon. What we call Babylon. Many lived in Rome. Some lived in Greece. Uh, a great deal lived in Egypt and uh, modern-day Libya and Morocco and even Iberia. Jews were spread all over the Mediterranean and the Near East. And, again, they were just one minority amongst others. The Jews kept to themselves. They engaged in business with others. Um, they didn't mind the emperor. They respected him. They certainly prayed for the emperor. They were not in overt conflict with their neighbors or with the empire, at least initially. Then comes Christianity. And this is something I think that we really need to discuss because people, I don't think people really understand the conflict between Christianity and Judaism. They, th they think of it in terms of Christianity being this conquering religion that demands complete and total submission and blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, no, no. What Christianity and Judaism have is, a, is an inherent theological uh, conflict that cannot be resolved. Here's what I mean. Jews at the time, and many Jews to this day, many religious Jews to this day, were waiting for the Messiah. They were waiting for the Messiah to come. The Christians had claimed that the Messiah had come in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jews denied this. And this is where the conflict really happens. I mean, think about it like this. Let's, even though I myself am an Orthodox Christian, I consider myself devout, let's think outside of the terms of my faith and let's look at this in pure group relations and power, as it were. You have two groups of people. Well, actually, more specific. Let's get a little more. Let's get a little more specific. Let's say you're a first-century religious Jew. Let's just say you're a first-century religious Pharisee. You go to the temple. You observe the laws. You engage in the rituals. You read the Torah, etc. So on. All of a sudden, there's a man claiming that he is the Messiah, and his worshippers 
and his followers say that he is the Messiah. Now this shocks you, and it goes against everything you really understand, especially because this man, his claims seem contrary to what the Torah and the prophets said that or at least the prophets said that the Messiah would be. If you don't believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, and you're a first century religious Jew, then in your eyes, Jesus Christ is an idolater, he is a blasphemer, you're thinking that maybe the miracles that people claim are attributed to him are done through black magic and satanic magic, and his followers are idolaters, they worship a man. This disgusts you, this angers you, and you fight against it. Maybe, maybe you throw stones at him and his followers because they're blaspheming against God and his prophets in the holy books. Maybe you insult him. Maybe you don't like Christians. Maybe, or, or maybe you just ignore them and you pretend the whole thing isn't happening. But by the end of the day, if you are a devout religious Jew and you maintain that, then what the Christians are doing is wrong. And if you are a Christian, say that you are a worshiper of Jesus Christ. You believe that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is the Messiah, is the Son of God. Then the Jews are wrong. They're denying Christ. They're denying God in your in His presence. They're denying the Messiah, and so you yourself are going to be angry when these Jews insult your God. And in context with the Romans, the Romans aren't really sure what to do, make of this. To them, it's just this little spat in a small strip of land far away from Rome has nothing to do with them. And the and the local Roman governors don't really know what to do with it. Look at the Gospels. Pontius Pilate isn't sure what to do. The Sanhedrin and the high priests are threatening uh, to take him to Caesar because he's not dealing with a rebellion. He washes his hands of it. He has him crucified. Of course, he rises from the dead three days later. And then afterwards, that's what matters. He rises from the dead. He preaches for 50 days. He ascends into heaven. Or at least that's what the Christians are saying. And so... These Jews are still incredibly mad at this, that his following has not only not died off, it seems to be invigorated. They're preaching more. They are debating people. They're going into the temple and debating people. They are engaging in a much more of what, what, what they would call rabble-rousing and idolatry, which is why, eventually, Stephen, the deacon would be martyred and stoned. And so, this is where the conflict happens. And this is how the conflict is going to play out for at least four centuries. Where Jews and Christians, who are minorities, wherever they reside in the empire, specifically in the east, whether um, it's Alexandria, or in Jerusalem, or Antioch, or Constantinople, they're going to come into conflict on equal terms in the sense that they're both two minority groups that don't have any real power and the local authorities are simply trying to keep the peace. We saw a great deal of this in Alexandria uh, during the what one would call the persecution of Hypatia, which is it's not really, but... That's the only way I can. That's the only term I can think of at the time. You know, the, the burning of the Library of Alexandria, where Saint Cyril of Alexandria and his uh, his his followers uh, had come into conflict with with Jews. That this had come into conflict with Jews, 
The Empire is just trying to deal with this. They're not really taking sides. But what happens eventually is that one side became dominant, the Christians. Theodosius, Emperor St. Theodosius, Emperor, makes Christianity the official religion. And so many Jews who had already been pushed off their land from the first Jewish revolt of uh, 66 AD, and then even more so when Hadrian finally expelled the vast majority of them after the second century revolt by, I think, Bar Kokhba was his name. So many of these Jews become exiled, and the Christians are very resentful. They're specifically resentful because this revolt that Hadrian put down, um, Hadrian put it down not simply because Jews were revolting, but he put it down with such fury and anger because the Jews had slaughtered and expelled and exiled all the, as many Christians, as many Romans as they could find. This sent Hadrian into an absolute fury. He brings 12 whole legions in to finally deal with the Jewish question, as it were. There's a lot of resentment on both sides. And again, this is at a time for centuries where both sides are an equal playing field in terms of power dynamics. But then eventually, when Christianity becomes dominant throughout both the, throughout the empire, both east and west, well, a lot of these Christians begin to sort of take, they have an opportunity to take revenge, or they have an opportunity to do what they think is right in terms of the Jewish, in terms of the Jewish question. And so, they end up persecuting Jews, or they end up putting restrictions on what Jews can or can't do. And this is a relationship that would go on and on and on for centuries, especially as Jews would enter into what is known as the Pale of Settlement. The Pale of Settlement is where the vast majority of Ashkenazi Jews, not Mizrahi Jews or Sephardic Jews, more specifically not Arab Jews, but where it's where a vast majority of what we call now modern Ashkenazi Jews settled. And this is Ukraine, Belarus, Poland, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and parts of what we'd call modern Russia. But that's really where a lot of them were. You also had a great deal of them in Hungary and some in Czechoslovakia and some in modern day, or at least the former Yugoslavia and even in Greece. Not to mention, of course, there was a decent amount of Ashkenazi Jews in Central and Western Europe and, of course, in England. But these Eastern European Jews generally were incredibly religious, much more religious than their Western European counterparts. Very devout, and they were incredibly antagonistic to their Christian neighbors, whom they had blamed for a great deal of their sufferings, and in some cases not unjustifiably so. And so, as a result, what we end up seeing is one group taking the opportunity to take advantage of the other group when the opportunity is given to them. So, for example, think about it like this. Mid to late 19th century, a lot of Jews are considering um, wanting to integrate and to be assimilated in their host countries, whether it's the Russian Empire or... Uh, France or Germany or England and it's happening in some places specifically in Western Europe Jews are assimilating to France and they're assimilating into Austro-Hungarian Empire and into the German Empire and into England Jews are assimilating into America as well but in Eastern Europe even though there was a desire on the part of the Russian Empire to assimilate the Jews 
that assimilation is happening much more slowly. And again, the hostilities between uh, the people of the Russian Empire, specifically Ukrainians and Poles and Belarusians, because that's where a lot of the hostility, that's where a lot of the Jews were in Eastern Europe. And, you know, Eastern European Ashkenazi Jews were, were very big. You had pogroms, they'd come in waves. But there was, but what would lead, what would lead up to the big series of pogroms that would happen in the 1880s and 1890s and the early 1900s was that Jews, young Jewish men and women who wanted a better lot in their lives, joined and in some cases started revolutionary political groups. They became communists. They joined or they formed communist parties, socialist parties, uh, social democrats, all sorts of left-wing groups. And and the aim of these uh, the aim of these groups, at least in the in the minds of these people, was to make their lot make their lot better, and to make their lives better, and to make the lives of their children better. At least that's how they saw it. But the problem is, is that they were incredibly hostile to the religious, devout, pious peasants. They hated the peasants, and a lot of them worked wanted to uh show solidarity with the urban poor and the urban working class they despised the peasants because to them the peasants were ignorant and stupid and not worth saving and so a lot of you know ukrainians and poles and people and you know christians of the russian empire were incredibly suspicious of these atheistic communistic left-wing jews that wanted to upend the social order down with the Tsar, down with the church, down with all the traditions. Take revenge upon those who have hurt you and establish a new social order where everyone is equal. There were several attempts at Tsar Alexander II. One of the first attempts was done by a singular man who was Jewish and part of one of these groups. This aroused the suspicions, the suspicions of a lot of people. Then there was another attempt that was successful. It was done by a group of men. One of them happened to be Jewish. And this is what really brought people over the edge. From 1881 to 1884, thousands of Jews would be killed in a series of hundreds of pogroms from Ukraine all the way up to Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. And this pushed a lot of Jews over the edge and millions of them would move to Western Europe millions of them would move to England and of course America but a small group of them decided enough was enough and they became infatuated infatuated with the idea of Zionism the idea that maybe we should have our own state and this is what I want to talk about I want to talk about this conflict. And this episode, I think it's going to be kind of short, is meant to sort of lay the groundwork for that. And I wanted to talk about anti-Semitism because I wanted to talk openly and honestly about it. Because if we're going to be honest, we have to understand that anti-Semitism is not because of an inherent defect in Christianity or an inherent moral righteousness in Judaism. But it's about two faith traditions 
that just did not get along inherently because of who they are. Think about it like this. Let's just say that, for example, Judaism had taken root in modern-day Pakistan, and you had tens if not hundreds of millions of people in Pakistan that were Jewish, while you had 1.5 billion people in India who are Hindus. Hinduism and Judaism do not get along because Jews would see Hindus as idolaters and blasphemers who worshipped demons and Hindus would hate the fact that Jews saw them in that way and they would also see them as strange and weird and uh, as worshipping some strange god that, uh, that offended their gods. I truly believe that you would still have the same kind of animosity that Pakistani Muslims have with Hindu Indians. You would have it if it was Pakistani Jews and Hindu Indians. We're talking about theological conflicts that just simply cannot be resolved or papered over or explained or retconned. I think a lot of I think this is why Muslims and Jews historically, you know, prior to the advent of Zionism, generally got along. Because Muslims accepted a great deal of what the Jews had believed in terms of the prophets and the holy books and the oneness of God. They rejected the triune God of the Christians. And it was very easy in many ways for Muslims to simply look at Jews as people of the book and be like, hey, we have so many things in common and we worship the same God. Uh, we, we, we just have differences. We are the people of Ishmael. Uh, Isaac is your forefather. Ishmael is ours. And we believe that Abraham had continued his mission and went down to Mecca and built a holy Ka the Holy Kaaba in Mecca. And Isaac had gone on to build a, a nation through uh, his descendants and those descendants. We're basically the same people in many ways. I mean, we pray a little differently, certainly, but there's no reason to cause conflict. Compare that to Christianity, where, and this is not to say Christianity is wrong or evil, terrible. But like many other religions, Christianity is just not particularly compatible either with, with, Ju with Judaism or Islam because of the claims that Christianity makes about the nature of Jesus Christ and the nature of God in, certain the ter in the terms of the fact that Christians believe in a triune God, not a single, well, not a God that is one and his oneness, as it were. I'm trying to explain this. I feel like I might be doing it wrong, and I apologize. And this comes into great conflict. And that's just the nature of things, I think. And it, and it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse because when you really think about it, Jews who felt, and who felt they'd been persecuted in many, in, many, in many ways were persecuted, Whenever they had a chance to take revenge upon their persecutors, they did. Think about it like this. Many of these Jews that joined and formed the revolutionary movements would overthrow the Russian Empire. The Tsar and his wife and children were slaughtered in a basement by Jewish revolutionaries, killed like dogs. And then later on, specifically in the 20s and the 30s, you had the Holodomor. The imposed famine of, of the Ukrainian kulaks by Stalin. Now, in my opinion, this was not Stalin trying to kill Ukrainians or kulaks for the sake that they were Ukrainians. My understanding and my reading of Holodomor basically seems to indicate that Stalin had simply 
engaged in a gross incompetence that had essentially led to Ukraine and Kazakhstan and several other areas to starve. And he did not change that or correct that even when it was made incredibly clear to him that it should. Probably because he thought it of having an added benefit of wiping out the Kulaks. But on the ground, the Cheka and NKVD officers, most of whom were Jewish, saw it as an opportunity to take revenge. Think about it like this. You're a Ukrainian peasant somewhere in maybe, I don't know, a village outside of Kiev or a village outside of Uman, where there's historically a very large Jewish population. You are starving. Your wife is starving. Your children is starving. You've eaten everything. You've eaten every last morsel of bread. You've killed all your livestock. You can't find any birds to hunt. You can't find any dogs to kill. There is nothing to eat. All the grass that you've tried to turn into bread, it's all gone. Animal feed, it's all gone. And then all of a sudden, here comes this NKVD officer enforcing the famine, but he eyes your wife and he says, hey, you want a loaf of bread? Let me have my way with her. And you are so desperate because you and your whole family are about to die. You relent. Now here's the thing. You look at this man. You look at how he looks. You look at his face. You ask him his name. He gives you a Jewish name. And you don't forget that. You don't forget that a Jewish man enforced a famine upon you you, your wife, and your children, and had his way with your wife for a single loaf of bread. And this is something that you saw all throughout modern Ukraine. I would not be surprised if a lot of these NKVD officers and political officers that enforced the five-year plans that created this famine maybe saw it as a way of taking revenge against these pious peasants that had persecute them and persecuted them in the past. So no wonder that when the Germans came into Ukraine in 1941 and told the Ukrainians that they were liberating them from Jewish Bolshevism, well, that just resonated with these Ukrainians, didn't it? No wonder that so many of them joined these SS battalions and joined the, the German army and formed their own battalions and brigades and regiments and divisions and very much embraced national socialism. Very much explains why Ukraine has a, a Nazi problem to this day. I think what I'm trying to say ultimately, and I'm not trying to really put blame on anyone here, because the end result is that in as much as in the early 30s the Jews may have felt that they've gotten revenge against uh, the pious peasants that persecuted them in the past, well, these pious peasants might have seen, a, seen themselves as, as getting revenge against these Jews that persecuted them when they joined these battalions and these regiments, and they committed terrible, terrible crimes against the Jewish population of Ukraine. Uh, the Baba Yar massacre being a great example of that, where over thirty thousand Jews in Kiev were slaughtered. If I know, if I have my numbers correct, and I, I think what I'm trying to do, and I'm trying to say here, is if we want to look at this conflict, if we want to look at the conflict between the Palestinians and between the Zionists and between what would become the State of Israel, we have to look at it honestly. And we have to look at it honestly as a conflict between two ethnic groups 
their desire for the land in many ways. Or more specifically, if we want to be really honest, we have to look at it as an ethnic group coming in to colonize the land and subjugate, brutalize, and oppress the natives. And we have to be okay with talking about this without fear of being called an anti-Semite. We have to be okay with talking about this without fear of being called anti-Jewish or a Jew hater. Because this is just a, these are just the facts of the matter. And in, many, and in many ways it does not indict all Jews or worldwide Jewry of being evil or terrible. It speaks about a specific group of Jews, Zionists, that did this and those who supported them. This podcast is going to be a very big effort. I'm hoping that I can get several of the episodes done by the end of the year, but if I'm lucky with both my personal schedule and with the amount of reading I'm going to be doing and the amount of research I'm going to be doing, I'll be lucky if by the end of the year I get two episodes out. And that's what I'm hoping to do. But I think it'll be worth it. I hope that you can be patient with me. I hope that this, that these past, I think, 30 minutes uh, has teased you enough and uh, left you wanting more, left you wanting to hear more. And so, yeah, please subscribe to the podcast. Leave a comment, share it with your friends. Uh, message me or contact me if you have any questions or concerns. And... See you all next time. Good luck and God bless.